Thanks for downloading and welcome to Take Orally, the emergency medicine podcast recorded at Dream Queen's Medical Centre, Nottingham. In this episode, we'll be discussing community-acquired pneumonia. As ever, all information is correct at the time of recording. All information is correct for Nottingham University Hospital's NHS Trust. Other trust guidelines may vary. All views and opinions are the speaker's own. Hello, welcome back to Take Orally. Uh, Jamie Thomas, uh, teaching fellow in emergency medicine here. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at McDreamy. And uh, once again, joined by my favourite respiratory physician, Dr. Harry Pick, uh, Reg in respiratory medicine and also a research fellow. Welcome back, Harry. Hi, thanks, Jamie. Uh, are you on Twitter? I'm not, no. Oh. no. I'm, 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 yeah, no, I can't get up with that. You're not a social media? No, I'm no. not, no. Uh, okay. we've, although uh, we have just launched a uh, pneumonia trust website as a group, research group. Okay. Uh, it's www.pneumoniatrust.co.uk. Okay. Um, so that's a resource for patients, healthcare professionals, um, telling them a little bit about pneumonia, uh, patient ex- experiences of pneumonia, mm. some of the l- national guidelines are linked on there, but also um, research we're doing in the, in the area nationally. So that's www.pneumoniatrust.co.uk. Pneumoniatrust.co.uk. Yeah, have a look. Will do. Okay. Debbie will be very pleased <laughs> if you do. <laughs> uh, okay, so a group, uh, a vision into how Harry met Jamie, which is the, the sequel to the film that nobody ever wanted to see. <laughs> yeah. uh, we met when you, you presented at our academic meeting about community-acquired pneumonia. Yes, that's right. CAP. Yeah. Uh, we'll be using both fr- uh, phrases here. Um, and so that's how we got talking and, and how the, these podcasts that we've done have come about. So yeah. this podcast, we're, we're, we're going to be looking at community-acquired pneumonia, or CAP. Yes. Um, certainly something I see very commonly and will diagnose very commonly in, in um, A&E and so the bread and butter of a, of a, uh, of a respiratory physician. Yeah, yeah, it's a very common diagnosis uh, for all of us actually. So I think the, the first thing to do is really define what, yeah. is, what is community-acquired pneumonia. Um, so the BTS definition is uh, a patient presenting with signs and symptoms consistent with an acute lower respiratory tract infection uh, so shortness of breath, productive cough, febrile, uh, myalgia, arthralgia, uh, uh, and chest pain again, pleurisic sure. chest pain, um, in association with when they're in hospital or attending hospital, new radiographic changes mm. on their uh, plain chest x-ray, uh, and that the illness is the main reason that they've come to hospital. Okay. So the pneumonia or its associated signs and symptoms. Uh, and that the admitting clinician treats the patient as a pneumonia as well. Okay. So that's interesting, isn't it? That's, that's part that's of the def- definition is that you treat it. Yeah, like, right? yeah. So, uh, and uh, the other thing is that it needs to have developed within the community or within 48 hours of being admitted to hospital. Yes, because otherwise you're into the realm of hospital-acquired pneumonia, aren't you? Bane, bane of my life, trying to differentiate <laughs> the two. Uh, yes. Uh, and one of the things that's been come quite clear in the more recent uh, guidelines is the the... Uh, move away from using phrases such as atypical pneumonia. Mm. Um, so there isn't really anything such as a atypical pneumonia itself. Pneumonia is a constellation, a clinical diagnosis, an umbrella term, uh, of which community-acquired pneumonia is, is one of those. Uh, uh, something we would like to encourage the use of is pneumonia secondary to atypical pathogens. Okay. So most people, when they're talking about atypical pneumonia, is actually that it's due to a funny bug rather than yeah. a funny presentation with pneumonia. Uh, actually, like engineers or, yeah. exactly. So, so atypical pneumonia is uh, uh, not what we want. It's community-acquired pneumonia, and then if you think it might be to be due to one of those atypical bugs, you can say atypical pathogen. It just helps us sure. to really clear the waters because I mean half the problem with lower respiratory tract infections, acute bronchitis, 
chest infections, pneumonia is the labeling, the mm. diagnosis, how people are allocated into which of those groups. And it does have effects on what patients expect, but also how they're treated. So trying to get that sure. accuracy in there is really important. Sure. So do you have any raw data then? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. the scale of this problem? We know I, you like a good statistic. I was gonna say, as you probably found from the PE uh, podcast, I'm keen on my numbers. So, <laughs> um, so the incidence of CAP diagnosed in the community is currently between five and 11 cases per thousand of the population. Community acquired pneumonia represents about 10% of low respiratory tract infections mm. presenting in the community. Mm. And of those patients in the community, uh, between 20 and 40% will eventually require admission to hospital for CAP. Okay. Um, so it's not an insignificant problem. No, it's not. The incidence of CAP uh, presenting to hospital is between 1.4 and 1.98 uh, per, per thousand of the population. And that's been increasing over recent years disproportionately affects the uh, the elderly as well. Mm. So in the young, that level is around the one per, per thousand population. It's more like 13 to 15 per thousand population for the elderly. Um, and uh, in the UK, so England and Wales, there's over 100,000 hospital admissions uh, per year for community acquired pneumonia. Wow. Interestingly, mortality with CAP in the community is around 1%. Okay. Um, so if you get pneumonia diagnosed by your GP, able to stay out of hospital, managed in the community, risk of you know, mortality, about 1%. Uh, if you're hospitalized uh, with any severity, it's between five and 14% mortality. Mm. If you end up in critical care with pneumonia, mortality is over 30%. Wow. Yeah, and the five-year cap mortality uh, is 40%. Okay. Yeah, which was a surprising stat that for me, actually. High. Yeah, so, so of those patients you see in ED, mm. uh, four out of 10 of them will have died within five years. And that's no reflection on yeah, my well, qualities as a clinician, I having, hope. Having never seen you any of these, I wouldn't possibly want to come in. Uh, is that, do you think that's because of comorbidities as well? Yeah. If, if you said they're more common in the elderly population? Yeah, no, I think, I think that's a reflection. I don't know whether it's sort of, uh, been proven that it's a reflection of CAP itself as a diagnosis or the fact that pneumonia is more common in the elderly, multi-morbid sure. uh, population and it is a marker of disease severity and, and chicken and egg a little bit, isn't it? Yeah. But is it the COPD? Is it the CAP? Yeah. So, but it's but it's interesting to think. You know, I think I think currently there is a bit of a perception around community-acquired pneumonia that it is uh, common, mm. um, but benign, mm. uh, but also that it's relatively easy to manage, investigate, manage properly. And I think some of the evidence we have from the national audit, some of the evidence from outcomes shows that there's room to be room for improvement in that across all sectors. You know, uh, the front door service, acute medicine respiratory medicine, general medics, treating pneumonics, we all see it, and uh, there's plenty of room for improvement within there. Okay. So what causes community-acquired pneumonia? Yeah, so... What, what, what bugs are? Very interesting. Um, so uh, no um, study of incidence or etiology uh, for pneumonia will ever be the same. And that's a lot to do with country it's conducted in, system it's conducted in, type of research, hospital. Um, Overwhelming majority of bacterial pathogens, uh, of which Streptococcus pneumoniae is the commonest cause uh, in all ages uh, and uh, is responsible for around about half of all pneumonia infections. Uh, so very common. Uh, most common in winter, so this time of year we're just starting to ramp up to our pneumococcal pneumonia season. Um, and uh, there's over 92 serotypes of Streptococcus pneumoniae um, 23 of them are responsible for 90% of those 50% of infections. Um, as you probably know, there's a 
pneumococcal vaccine given to children. I was going to say, yeah. Um, so the, the, the evidence behind that came from the US and was then confirmed when it's been brought into the UK population. So that's a, a vaccination against 13 of the serotypes, the commonest causes of uh, infection in children for pneumococcal disease. And there's been a significant reduction in invasive pneumococcal bacteremia in children, uh, but also a reduction in the rate of pneumococcal infection in adults as a, a consequence of herd immunity. Okay. Um, there's also the uh, pneumococcal vaccine for adults over the mm. age of 65, covers for 23 of the serotypes. The evidence for reducing or preventing pneumonia is less clear in that population. Um, it would suggest that it reduces the severity of the pneumonia you get if you get it, but it doesn't stop you from getting pneumonia. Okay. And, and other pathogens that are implicated are Haemophilus influenzae, uh, uh, Moraxellia catarrhus, uh, and serratia in uh, bacterial uh, and then there's the atypical pathogens we just alluded to so uh, legionella mycoplasma chlamydia and coxiella um, so legionella um, typically <laughs> textbook associated with your holiday to benidorm uh, you know, uh, air conditioning, air conditioning yeah. units um, it's often a, a, a pathogen we see more frequently in summer and autumn months um, usually travel related but also outbreaks related to waterborne infection then uh, uh, there's also you know mycoplasma tends to occur in epidemics uh, affects the young adults middle age more than elderly uh, 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 epidemics every three to four years uh, and uh, winter predominance uh, and then coxiella burnetti just want to throw out there for <laughs> uh, yeah weird and wonderful diagnoses when you're on a post eight ward rounds uh, do not mention this first <laughs> uh, but it's uh, associated with uh, exposure to animals usually sheep mm. interestingly only 8% of people who have coxiella have an occupational history of working with animals and the other 90% have exposure through other sources mm. which I thought was quite interesting mm. uh, and then the other causes of uh, community acquired pneumonia are, are viruses um, so rhinovirus, influenza, parainfluenza and adenovirus um, recent studies using PCR rather than culture methods uh, have shown that there's two or more bacterial species in pneumonia in about 30% of cases. Okay. Um, and um, viruses are co-implicated with bacteria in about 80% of the cases. Um, so it's interesting. So I suppose the clinical implication of that is if you've um, done your microbiological investigations, we'll come to talk about shortly, but you found a bacteria, um, there could well be a virus. But if you find a virus and not a bacteria, the chances are there is a bacteria there, so you should carry on with the viral and antibacterial treatments, if you're thinking of it. Okay. Does that make sense? I think Is that, that makes clear? sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I suppose you've got a pneumonia patient, you're treating with antibiotics, you do a viral throat swab, the virus comes back, you don't stop the antibiotics, but you can add in an antiviral mm. treatment, if appropriate, that's a separate issue <laughs> in and of itself. Um, so I think that's probably it on the sort of etiology side of things. And so uh, what guidelines are there to, to help us? Yeah, so, uh, so the guidelines we use uh, in terms of uh, community-acquired pneumonia, there's the, the British Thoracic Society community-acquired pneumonia guidelines. Um, so uh, they, there's an update from those from 2009. Uh, there's the NICE pneumonia guidelines from uh, 2014. And then there's the Infectious Disease Society of America slash ATS guidelines from 2007. And then whenever we're talking about infection, there's always the surviving sepsis and sepsis-related guidelines. Uh, so there's the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines from 2016. Um, and so they're the things we can refer to in, in sort of managing community-acquired pneumonia. 
and most hospitals will have a trust level yeah, guideline. Absolutely. And, and NUH certainly does. Okay. So, um, how are we going to then manage our patients? Because, like we talked about PE, they don't come in with a label. Yeah. So, we've got yeah. a patient come in yeah. with a productive cough, with a fever. Yeah. How are we going to manage them? Yeah, so, so, so I think, uh, as we've alluded to in previous podcasts, it's always uh, ABCD assessment, uh, something drilled into all of us. And uh, so you, you check your there's no uh, adverse features within that assessment. And then when you're happy, you can settle down and get into the nuts and bolts of taking a history and an examination. Um, for me, I think the really important thing to do with any infection, but also community-acquired pneumonia, is to have in your own minds separating the patients out into people with infection mm. as opposed to sepsis. Mm. Um, so, so we see it quite commonly um, that patients with pneumonia will be labelled as sepsis because of a... Um, scoring regime or their EWS and they get run down a pathway which isn't necessarily the right one and I think you need to have in your own mind of what is sepsis and what is infection and for me with sepsis there's good evidence strong evidence that the range the battery interventions like delivered within one hour has morbidity and mortality implications you know Mm. so you deliver the sepsis six within an hour you start antibiotics there are very clear guidelines that show that that helps mm. for every hour over that there is clear indication that you don't do as well you know i think it's a 17 percent reduction in your uh, survival for every hour that you take longer than that so so for sepsis so people hitting the sepsis signs who you think have got an acute low respiratory tract infection get down the sepsis side of it you know plowing the fluids get on with the antibiotics do the investigation associated with that at but, this point i point i would uh uh, point out to the take or the sepsis podcast that's already out there so um have a listen to that if you want to refresh yourself about sepsis and yep. its uh, implications sorry harry i cut you off no it's okay um uh, so, so so that's one category sepsis the thing for me is there is inadvertent consequences of all of this uh sepsis education sepsis management sepsis mm. focus on sepsis in that a lot of other conditions where they're not septic but they have an infection are managed as if they are sepsis. And that has, for me, implications on appropriate antibiotic use and treatment for patients. Mm. So in my mind, I'd like to say that people with acute low respiratory tract infections who don't hit sepsis, the guidelines and the evidence is as them getting treatment within four hours mm. is the target. If you treat people in under four hours, they have a survival and mortality benefit. Over four hours, there is a reduction. There is no evidence in those people that treating them within one hour versus four hours increases their out, you know, their, their chance of a good outcome. So I think having it clear in your mind, sepsis versus infection, sepsis one hour, infection four hours. And the reason I think that's important is it gives you the opportunity to confirm the diagnosis through other investigations, to think about what antibiotics you're going to use mm-hmm. in the era of antibiotic stewardship, the millennial goals, you know, the funding from the government to reduce antibiotic prescriptions, I think that's key. But also then to have some investigations to say, well, this is likely to be X, Y, Z pathogen. Sure. Let's go that way. Um, so, so I suppose you, you've done your A2E assessment. You've figured out whether they're sepsis or their their regular infection. Uh, you've taken your history. You've determined you think it's the chest that's the source. Uh, the next thing really to do is clinical examination. Uh, we know what we'd find there. But then also moving on to investigations. And, and the BTS outlines what investigation should be done for people with community, suspected community-acquired pneumonia. I'd suggest that they're probably the same investigations for someone that's got acute lower respiratory tract infection, whether you're thinking exacerbation of COPD, acute bronchitis, community-acquired pneumonia. This is the battery of things that they should all have. 
Um, so that's a set of observations, and that should include assessment of their arterial oxygenation status, whether that's their SATs or whether that's an arterial blood test. Depends a little bit on local policies. My personal opinion is that they have a saturation of less than 94% in somebody without chronic lung disease, or they're requiring any supplemental oxygen, mm. they should always have an arterial blood gas. My personal preference as a respiratory physician is anybody who comes through the door with COPD should have a baseline arterial blood gas because it helps you in their management moving forward. Um, they should all have a chest X-ray requested. Sure. They should all have a set of bloods, FPC, UE, CRP, and LFTs. Uh, they are for uh, helping with diagnosis, but also risk stratification, but then also helping us manage them further down the road. Now I know uh, CRP <laughs> isn't always the, the favorite investigation of all trusts, uh, cost implications, but also clinical headaches sometimes with a CRP. There's good evidence in community-acquired pneumonia that a CRP at admission is useful for us in terms of assessing response to treatment further down the line. So if you compare a CRP on day one with a CRP taken on day three, you should expect a 50% reduction in that CRP level if they're on the right treatment, if they're responding. Uh, and at day seven, compared to day one, there should be a 90% reduction in their CRP. So if you're at day three or day seven, you've not got those reductions, you need to start thinking, is it the right path, right bug, right diagnosis, right antibiotic, are there resistance, is there something else going on? So it helps us to know which patients we're treating appropriately or not. There isn't any evidence that the CRP level has any relationship to outcome or how you should treat them. So and I think that's the thing where the front door services maybe have a little bit of a problem with CRP is, it's not a great test in terms of discrimination um, and it doesn't particularly help diagnosis at that moment in time, although a normal CRP in somebody who you think has got LRTI would prompt you to start thinking of something else. Um, it helps us down the road and it helps the patients eventually with their management. Mm -hmm. um, the, the other investigations, microbiological investigations, is blood cultures uh, times two in everybody, um, preferably prior to antibiotics, although not always possible, preferably from two separate sites at separate points in time. Sputum cultures for those in moderate severe disease that haven't had antibiotics within the preceding seven days. And urinary antigens for streptococcus pneumonia, legionella, and those with moderate severe community acquired pneumonia. One of the things we're pretty hot on at the moment is trying to do viral throat swabs. Um, there's big variation in who gets a viral throat swab and it's often clinician based. Um, so we would suspect you should have, well, would recommend that you have a a viral virus will be anyone with severe community-acquired pneumonia, um, because viral pathogens tend to give you a more severe pneumonia if, if they do. But also anybody who you think might have a suspected viral etiology for any of the conditions, so mm -hmm. bronchitis, um, LRTI, pneumonia. And that's something probably poorly done at the moment where there's room for improvement. Yeah. And so I suppose that's the investigation side of it. Yeah. Uh, the next thing to do would be, once you've got your investigations back, to risk stratify them. Yeah, it's because I was saying, so you were talking about moderate or severe yeah, pneumonia. Yeah. Um, so I suppose once, uh, I suppose that leads to our question, isn't it? So we've got our x-ray, we're very happy we can see there's uh, some pneumonia there. Yes. We're happy that it fits with our picture. I plan to treat as pneumonia. Yes. How can we work out how severe our patient's pneumonia yeah. is? So the, the, there's two uh, validated risk, severity risk assessments. Uh, one is the CURB-65. It's the one that we uh, prefer here, um, developed by uh, my, 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 my boss, Prof yep. Lim. Um, so he developed it, validated it. Taught me at med school yeah. as well. Uh, so a professor of um, respiratory medicine and medicine 
and consultant respiratory physician over at Nottingham. Um, so he developed the CURB in conjunction with our colleagues, developed the CURB 65 score. Um, very simple, very easy to use. There's a community-based version, which is the CRB 65, which you drop the urea out of, mm. and it's a validated in community setting for severity as well. Because you've not got the use knees. Because you've got the use knees. But it's still valid for the GP's colleagues to use for severity assessment. So you score one for each of uh, C is acute confusion, U is a urea greater than seven, R is respirator of greater than 30, B is systolic blood pressure of less than 90, and slash or diastolic blood pressure less than 60. Mm. And 65 is age over 65. The observation, so the respiratory rate and the blood pressure is their first when they hit the unit. Okay. So it's their first observations in ED. So Before they've had oxygen route, started, before they've, before had, they've had fluids going. And sometimes actually you have to go back to the ambulance um, yeah. the history sheets to get those because they'll come in on some oxygen. Yeah. Um, and they may have settled, may have had a neb, you know, there may be other things going on. So you, you have to look back. Sure. And so depending on what they score, um, 0-1 to 1 is, is rated as low severity pneumonia. Mm. And the risk of death with with that risk of mortality is less than 3%. Uh, a, a score of two would be classed as moderate severity, and the risk of death with that is around 9%, and of three or above is high severity, and the risk of that varies between 15 and 40%. Mm. Now the benefit of the CURB 65 score is uh, threefold, really. It guides your uh, microbiological investigations, so it tells you whether or not you should be sending things like urinary antigens, doing sputum cultures, um, and the reason for that is that the high severity disease so the atypical pathogens tend to give you high severity disease sure. so there's a better pickup rate if you send them in those patients um, so that's your urea antigen urinary antigen for legionella and pneumococcal in, yeah. in severe in moderate to severe moderate so, to severe yeah, cap, so, yeah. so yeah two to three um, so that's the first in guides your microbiological investigations uh, the second is it risk stratifies you mm. and through that it then tells you whether you could be treated as an inpatient or an outpatient based purely on their pneumonia score, the CURB 65 score. It's not based on if they've got social ability to cope at home or they've got decompensated comorbidities. And that's a little bit where this comes into uh, its clinical judgment alongside. Uh, and the third thing is it helps you guide your antibiotics uh, management. So based on their severity is what empirical antibiotics you should, you should treat that patient with. Yeah. The caveat to CURB 65 is that clinical judgment always trumps it. Mm. There's several situations where CURB 65 can give you a, a low score where actually you've got more severe disease. And that tends to be in the young, fit, previously healthy patients and also people with bilateral infiltrates on chest x-ray. Okay. and those who are hypoxic because that's not taken into account sure. so they're the three sort of groups where you need to just have a little bit of a caveat in your mind that actually yes they've got a curb score of zero but they're sat to 92 on air they may need to be admitted for 24 48 hours or yes their curb 65 is zero but they're young and they look awful you know end of the bed yeah. gut test uh, or you know they've got bilateral chest x-ray changes looks more severe than that scores elucidating to at the moment sure. let's let's keep them in a uh, short stay area you know, somewhere for observation overnight, see how we get on. Sure. I suppose um, getting on to the treatment aspect, we want to narrow our antibiotics as, as quickly as we can. I know that, you know, we talk about the um, sepsis 6 and, yeah. um, you know, so broad spectrum in those, in, in those cases. Yeah. But if we are suspecting a chest source, if we've got our confirmed pneumonia, trying yeah. to narrow down as quickly as we can. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's completely right. Um, so, so, so we'll start with the sepsis side of things, you know, Empirical therapy uh, for sepsis, depending on the trust, 
usually involves Tazerson, uh, but and or other agents. Um, it's quite interesting in in sepsis cases where you've got an undetermined source of infection. Studies have shown that fifty percent of that will be chest sepsis, will be due to a low mm. respiratory tract infection. So actually, giving them a broad spectrum antibiotic like Tazerson alongside uh, something for high severity disease like a macrolide probably is the best approach, unless you've got an obvious other source. Um, we often add on macrolides to those sorts of patients that come across. Uh, and um, you know, in terms of antibiotic treatment, from narrowing down, uh, the reason that low severity disease is a single agent is because the most common cause of uh, infection in that group will be something like streptococcus pneumoniae, which is very sensitive to a penicillin and antibiotic, and the risk of failure or not treating uh, the right pathogen is very low. Uh, the reason that high severity disease is given uh, penicillin-based antibiotic or beta-lactam plus a macrolide is it's more likely to include an atypical pathogen. Um, so for local guidelines, NUH, these are the same as the BTS guidelines. You, you'd expect that because Proflin wrote them both <laughs> <laughs> with colleagues. Uh, man in power. Yeah, man, yeah. So, so for, for low severity, uh, curb 65 not to one is it's oral amoxicillin or doxycycline if you're penicillin allergic. Uh, and for curb 65 2, which is moderate disease, it's oral amoxicillin and oral clarithromycin. And if it's high severity, say three, curb 65 3 and above, it's IV carmoxicillin and clarithromycin. And that will cover you for the majority of pathogens. Mm -hmm. The reason we um, add in the macrolide um, to the beta-lactam for moderate and severe is that there's been studies using the BTS pneumonia data set that have shown there is a reduced mortality in moderate to severe severity cap with the addition of a macrolide. Mm. There are studies now that are starting to refute that, who are starting to say that actually there's no benefit in adding a macrolide to empiric beta-lactam therapy. I think the jury's still out of that, but the current national guidelines for us in the UK is that we give moderate to severe severity, get a macrolide in addition to the beta-lactam. Mm -hmm. I think until we know more about the evidence, that's what we have to carry on with. Sure. Obviously, there's risks and benefits to giving macrolides. Um, the, the other thing which we sort of elucidated to in, in the discussion about sepsis versus infection is um, there's good evidence from the BTS CAP set that if you give your first antibiotic within four hours, it leads to a 16% reduction in your inpatient mortality compared to patients who have it after four hours. Mm. And for it, the longer the time after the four hours that the antibiotic is delayed, the, there is an increase in mortality. Sure. So that four hour window is the really, really tight thing. You would hope, here in the, we're recording in the UK, obviously, yeah. we have our four hour target in yeah. A&E. You would really hope, yeah. touch wood. I mean, so what proportion, yeah. Jamie, do you think of the the national data set shows that they don't receive their cap antibiotics within four hours. Oh, I would say that zero percent. Obviously, I'm yeah. very proud of A&E. No, tell me then about... Well, what well it's it? funny you say A&E. So uh, the national order set shows that 70% of pneumonia comes through ED, 30% mm. goes through a direct medical admission ward. Mm. Um, and nationally, 35% of our pneumonia patients don't receive their first antibiotic within four hours. Mm. Now, the, the, the caveat to that is that the BTS data set... Um, includes patients from December to January from 2009, 2010, uh, 2011, 2012, and 2014. And about halfway through that period, the four hour targets really yeah. kicked in and the four hour, one hour, four hour sepsis has changed. And actually the more recent years, there is a trend to giving them more within four hours. But the overall data set shows that 35% of our patients with pneumonia don't receive their antibiotics within the first uh, four hours. So could do better. Could do better. Lots of room for improvement. <laughs>
And um, you mentioned clarithromycin. Is, is yep. there any evidence about oral versus IV on clarithromycin? Yeah, so, pneumonia? Um, so, so, so there's, there's supposed to be uh, uh, better bioavailability with IV. So the majority of patients normally get IV clarithromycin for the first 24 to 48 hours and then switch over to oral thereafter. Um, I mean, there, there's papers one way and the other with that. And I think the practice locally is... IV clarithro for the high severity with IV Comox sure. and switched over. Uh, everything less than high severity should be oral antibiotics according to your local guidelines. There's obviously uh, other scenarios when you need to think about others. So if they, there's aspiration, you need to think about adding uh, anaerobe covering mm-hmm. um, for that. Uh, and uh, obviously hospital-acquired pneumonia is a whole behemoth subject in and of itself. Yeah. Or in ventilators, yeah. Also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll skate around that one. Um, so, so saying any, yeah. um, one of the challenges I have um, is that I've, you know, I've given my diagnosis to my patient yeah. and said, This is what is wrong with you, and I you know, feel great. Yeah. And then they turn to me and go, So, how long am I going to be in hospital, yeah. doctor? How long is it going to be till I'm better? Am yeah. I going to be better? So, how long can these patients expect to be in hospital for, in your experience? Yeah. And what's their recovery like? Yeah, yeah. So, um, from the BTS data set across all all severity classes. The average length of stay is six days. Okay. Um, so low severity tends to be between two and four, and the moderate severe get, get up towards a week um, in hospital. And that's usually because for the low severity, well, for all patients, when you're discharging them or switching to oral antibiotics, you're looking for them to have what we call uh, no evidence of instability. So time to clinical improvement, basically. Um, so we have discharge criteria, so we don't want them to be on oxygen. We want them to tell us they feel better, uh, not tachycardic, not tachypneic, not febrile, uh, and their inflammatory markers to be improving. And when all those things happen, they'll get switched onto oral tablets, and then once they've been in for 48 hours, well, 24 hours after that, they'll normally be discharged. Sure. Um, so if you're having two or three days of IVs, you then switch onto orals, and then you're going home. It's normally getting on for five or six days for the moderate and high severity. Um, for the low severity, that tends to occur much quicker, so you can, you can help them escape. Um, so a lot of patients will complete between 7 and 14 days of antibiotics in total and I think the expectation management is the main thing that we need to, we need to address mm. now. A lot of patients feel that when they finish their antibiotics they should be back to their normal self yeah. but we know with pneumonia that's not the case okay. and the thing I tell them often is that it's a, a serious infection in one of your major organs, the infection is treated but your body's got to recover from that process and actually it takes around six weeks on average to get back to your normal self okay. we have evidence that in some people it can take up to a year Wow. Okay. Uh, and the younger people with less comorbidities will get better quicker than yeah. six weeks um, there has been a number of studies looking at recovery from pneumonia um, and one of the largest one of the most comprehensive showed that at four weeks 86% of people still have a symptom so they still are short of breath fatigued, have a cough um, the median time for return to work is 14 days and the median time for return to their usual activities is between 21 and 22 days. Um, so there's a significant burden of disease in recovery. Mm. Um, so I think the main thing to say is you will get better with time. Mm. Symptoms persisting isn't necessarily a sign of ongoing infection but recovery and expect it to take a minimum of six weeks for you to get anywhere near your normal self and it can take longer than that. Wow! Yeah, six yeah, weeks. Yeah, yeah. I'll remember that. Yeah, now. yeah. I mean, we, I mean, we, we, we traditionally have follow up uh, at six weeks for patients, mm. and that was a bit of a finger in the air. Let's guess a time point to do follow up, something that feels right. 
availability of clinic slots, time for the x-ray to resolve. Uh, but actually, the, the whole six-week follow-up visit, the agenda is the clinicians and not the patients. Okay. And actually, majority of people will still have symptoms. They'll be improving, but they'll not be back to themselves at that time. Okay. Um, yeah, so I suppose, I mean, pneumonia is interesting as a diagnosis because sometimes I think, like you said earlier, patients just sort of shrug their shoulders and go, okay, you're going to give me some antibiotics and I'm going to be fine. Uh, I've also, I've given the diagnosis and I've um, really upset some patients because it has that stigma of being something that, you know, people with dementia, oh, it's the, the old person's friend, it's what finishes, or, you know, and or they, they know an elderly relative who died. It's a strange diagnosis in that. Yeah, I think one of the, the major problems is we don't really know what pneumonia recovery is. Yeah. Um, so there's not been a great deal of studies defining that, and we don't know what the average time is really. We mm. have an idea. Um, conducting studies in recovery from pneumonia is difficult because you only have that patient presenting when they're at their worst. You don't know what their baseline is, yeah. and you can't assess their baseline other than recall. And then there's all the problems with recall bias and what is a persistent symptom and what is what they had before. Um, so there's lots of uh, inherent problems with research and recovery. Um, and I think that you're right that I think there's also, my feeling is that there's a gap between what clinicians think pneumonia is and its implications mm. and what patients think pneumonia is and its implications. And part of that is not helped by wrong labeling or wrong allocation of diagnosis. So telling a patient they've got a chest infection when they've got pneumonia or telling them they've got a respiratory tract infection when they've got a pneumonia doesn't help them. Mm. Um, but I think patients expect um, because of their illness that there may be scarring or this may be life-threatening or they're never going to get better from it again. And I think as clinicians think it's a worrying diagnosis in the short term, but long term patients get better from it they don't tend to have long-lasting problems and there's this mismatch and I think mm. managing expectations from that can be challenging at times mm. um, and that's probably one of the reasons why we have quite a high readmission rate and reconsultation rate for pneumonia is uh, patients feel vulnerable uh, they want support that's not always available they're not sure what to expect so they end up going back to ED GP uh, coming back into hospital and at that six weeks, will they they'll get a follow up chest X ray as well to so, make sure resolution? Um, or? Yeah, so you, you so, so so evidence is that two weeks after your pneumonia, half of people's chest X rays will have resolved. At four weeks, about sixty percent, and at five weeks, six weeks, about 70 percent will have improved, um, well, or resolved anyway. Um, the um, follow up visit generally is resolution of of, pneumo of pneumonia changes on X ray. In a small proportion of patients, pneumonia might be the first sign of an underlying structural lung disease. So something like bronchiectasis or, or, pneumo or uh, malignancy, so lung cancer. And if it's not resolving at six weeks, depending on the picture and the risk factors, would either proceed to a CT scan or maybe a, a little bit longer and another x-ray. Um, but, but the pickup is, is low, it's around the 5% mark. Thank you very much, Harry. Lovely. So that's community acquired pneumonia uh, tackled. Uh, thank you so much for coming. Uh, thanks everyone for listening. Goodbye. That was the Take Orally Community Acquired Pneumonia podcast. Remember, you can find uh, Take Orally at www.takeorally.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. For more information about um, research and education opportunities within emergency medicine, acute medicine, and major trauma, be sure to find uh, Dream NUH Dream on both Facebook and Twitter.